This is Life Worlds, the place where we explore life through other eyes and minds. Let's flip the script and discover how to orient your world around nature. I'm Alexa Permanish. Come join me as we get down and forage for fungi, stalk coyotes, draft laws for rivers, hum with beehives, sing bird language, and help beavers to dam again. Let these stories spark your reconnection to nature's multiverse. Learn how to bring ecosystems back to life. Become an agent for other intelligences. And begin to see how you too are the sum of all life worlds. Good day, everyone. It is wonderful to have you here on another episode of Life Worlds. Today we're joined by two master indigenous scholars and artists. They will be laying down some clues from their ancestral cultures on how to interpret and read the laws of the land and how their engagement with the life worlds of other species is tied to pretty much everything that they do. Our first conversation is what he likes to call a yarn. And so please kick back and enjoy this yarn with Tyson Yonkaporta, Aboriginal scholar, founder of the Indigenous Knowledge Systems Lab at Deakin University in Melbourne, and member of the Appalach clan, in far north Queensland, Australia. Tyson is the author of the book Sand Talk, which was wildly successful. And I reckon that part of its popularity has to do with the way that Tyson is able to pack in such punchy wisdom, along with a very sharp-witted trickster-like humor. I love this conversation, and I think you will too. We discuss how their lab collects data and knowledge through a very special indigenous sense-making protocol. And then they apply it to issues like economic reform, broken landscapes, cybersecurity, and neuroscience. We delve into things like the importance of engaging with place, his misgivings around biomimicry, why a real ceremony is not all fun and games, and how the West can quit longing and start acting in finding its own indigeneity. We'll then visit wisdom holder and elder Joe Martin, who will be speaking to us from British Columbia. Joe is a member of the Tlaquat First Nation and is a master canoe and totem pole carver with over 60 canoes having been whittled and chiseled away by his hands. Just earlier this July, he and his community raised a new totem pole in ceremony at the ancient village of Hobitsat, which depicts his family's teachings of natural law. I've uploaded images of the totem poles in the show notes where you can see how each pole carries millennia-old myths and stories and teachings about the human relationship with forces like the bear, wolf, raven, sun, moon, and stars. I hope that both of these conversations will entice you to uncover and excavate your own family lineage, all of the brimming folk tales and myths and life worlds held by your people, and the land where your blood and cosmologies sprouted from. On my end, I want to get my hands on some wood and start carving, and to help bring the presence of our banished kin, like the wolf and the bear, back into my daily life world. For more on that, you can listen to our episode on rewilding. As always, thank you for listening. And if you enjoy these abbreviated episodes, then you can tune in to the full hours, which can be found in all the usual places. And now, over into Tyson Yonkamporta. How do those processes, those indigenous processes, look and feel different to what people in the West might be accustomed to? <sighs> well, there is a focus on very different variables 
you know, time and place are always very key variables. So, you know, Western processes are very good, but they do tend to eliminate those things. So you might need to know what the properties of this substance are and test it for X, Y, and Z, but without paying attention to where and when that substance is harvested. So we might know that in this region, you harvest that fish fat when you see the yellow flowers on the trees. That's the right season. That's the time when it's medicinal. Whereas Western science, it's just fish oil is fish oil. Of course, the results of your fish oil trials, you know, for kidney dysfunction, that, that's going to be variable results that you'll get. So time and place are key variables for a start, but it's also who and how you know, you work with that knowledge. It's, it's seldom a singular theory or a singular kind of genius, you know, running the project. I mean, there's always people from lots of different tribes working together who have very different approaches to things, very different stories, very different focuses, different lenses, you know, people from different clans, different totemic groups who have a different focus on the environment. And so we think it's very good to bring all those together. Maybe you can bring us into how that conversation unfolds and what that protocol is when you come together and just talk about stuff. Well, it's, you know, it's, it's interesting. You, you kind of have to be sung in, storied in, brought in, you know, by the person that's making that place. And so, you know, we have JD on our team, uh, John Davison. He's a cobble gobble, waka waka man. He, keeps song cycles and different things from the Bunya Mountains there. You know, so he kind of keeps the fire for us there and brings us in around it as people from many different parts of Australia with different cultures. So we come together around that fire and it's how he arranges us, <laughs> which is a you know, very open, very welcoming situation and just ensuring that there is no sort of singular voice that is dominating coming out on top that we're not seeking to defeat different points of view or anything like that, but for all of us to bring our stories. And so I guess it's a process first of bringing all the stories alongside each other and then determining, you know, what needs to be done. There's a name for the process, which is unusual because we don't have a lot of abstract nouns, you know, so we don't have a word for art. <laughs> it's just something you do. <laughs> and we don't have a word for nature because as if you would name something like that and call it something that goes over there and you go over here. <laughs> so no, you're embedded in it. But there is this really nice collective now called Wanju, which we follow, and basically it translates as collective sense-making. It's all of us bringing our different data sets together and storying those. So I guess that first layer is us coming around the fire like that and talking up what's happening in our landscapes, dreams that we've had, the relationships that we have, which ones are troubled, but then the new relationships that have come in. I want to put a pin in one part of what you shared, which was how you bring the other voices in the room. Yeah. Because something we'll touch on a little bit later is how we bring the voices of all the other beings that we share this beautiful earth with into climate and sustainability conversations. And that's why at Ground Effect, we call ourselves an animist investment vehicle, which is something to keep striving for. And that will always be imperfectly practiced, right? With a lot of humility. Yeah. Um, so I definitely want to touch on that. And I also would be terrified and yet enthralled to have been in the room when you guys were <laughs> breaking it down and talking about ground effect <laughs> in all those ways. And to, to be able to talk about relating to place and context, which I really, really want us to dig into because it's just so critical. I want to set that up by speaking first about 
how human beings relate to place, which is even just ridiculous that we have to have that conversation as human beings, but we are in a situation where we even have to think about what that means. Yeah. Whereas before it was natural and intuitive. And you had this amazing phrase in your book, Sand Talk, that uh, I'm going to pick up on two phrases. The first was this idea of avatar depression that I'd never heard before. <laughs> <laughs> and I related to that phrase in your book because I encountered that after I watched Avatar, I was just like freaking homesick. And I was like, what the hell am I doing? I want to live in this world. But in this idea of relating to place, and you said as well in the book, the assistance that people need is not in learning about Aboriginal knowledge, but in remembering their own, which is so interesting because, you know, we have so many new age and experiential uh, meanderings where people go around the world and try and tap into so many forms of Aboriginal knowledge. And I think that that's important, but it was liberating when you said almost Europeans don't have to look to the edges of their cultures. Maybe you don't even have to have avatar depression, become your place and belong personally to your own system. And whilst that is something that I think most people would agree with when they hear it, they're like, okay, but we're so far from that. Like how the hell do we even start? And so I'm wondering if just just on that superficial level, before we speak about the practices relating to place, what advice you can give to people in terms of how they can even go about that process of not seeking other people's indigeneity, but beginning to encounter their own somehow? Where do they even get going? Yeah. I guess like uh, if you were really hungry and sort of there was a pie and it was made and it kind of had the pastry and the filling, but but none of it was cooked yet and you just started to eat the pie because you're really hungry. And, and then, of course, you start vomiting because that's all no good. I mean, it's kind of like that. Mm -hmm. It's like, um, you know, this is something that's it's desperately needed, a reconnection. It's not just people who are longing for it individually and personally, like it's a selfish thing. It's something we're feeling as a species, you know, and not just as a species but as a system, you know, we're interconnected with all these other species and the entire planet. We're connected with all these things in dire straits. It's absolutely necessary that people are able to return to place. If I want to appropriate from someone else's culture, I might call it a right of return. You could call it right as in R-I-T-E, if you like, but people need to return to the land. You know, that doesn't mean, you know, you take off your clothes and walk out Ooga Booga into the prairie and <laughs> smear mud all over your face and go raw <laughs> that's that's not what i'm talking about but maybe maybe that too we, we do need to re-embed ourselves in landscape and in place and um slowly start moving towards a way of life whereby we don't need the word nature anymore what's the low-hanging fruit there for people and i'm speaking about western people mostly but not even you know urban folk yeah so there's that frustration signal that, that most people are feeling and I think you follow that, but you also don't. You know, if you're dying of thirst, you, you can't drink too. You've got to take small mouthfuls, you know, so I think you take baby steps because, you know, we're all profoundly damaged and you don't want to go too quickly with these things. And much of it's awareness-based, and I think it's about bringing those variables of time and place into your observation. That's a good start, even if you're in a metropolitan area. But it's also about collective sense making around that. So, for example, in our lab, Chelsea Marshall, she's a marine biologist and urban planner, 
and she thinks that those are two very compatible <laughs> things. She talks about a time when she she had to do some workshops with a, a lot of really sort of disconnected Aboriginal young people, you know, that really hadn't learned very much culture or anything like that. So she sat down with the elders first and she got from them a seasonal calendar. They mapped out all of the seasons and all of the changes that happened in their tribal lands. It's very complex because there's usually about seven or eight seasons in Australia. And so she went to those young people, but she didn't show it to them right away. She actually got them all to draw and write anything over their lifetime observations about how the land changes at different times of the year. And then she got them to all come together and share that, you know, in that big Wanju collective sense-making and to all together create a collage of all their shared, just fragmentary knowledge. And they put it all together, you know, into a big visual map. And then she brought out the one from the elders, that very senior elder knowledge, and she put it up alongside theirs and it was identical. And she said, see, like, you know, you know, together, you know. They knew more than they thought they did. Oh man, that's so empowering. Yeah. And here is how you find it. You're making that sense, making collectively and in place. Um, everything's there. The knowledge is there. Nothing's lost. Like if you're seeking individually, you won't know much and you might lament the little that you know because it won't be much. It'll just be a fragment. But collectively, there's a lot. I don't know. You seem to always want to save the wishbone when you cook a chicken and you set that aside and dry it and you don't know why you're doing that. <laughs> um, you know, a thousand little things like that when you all get together and share all those stories you know, and there isn't that judgment, there isn't that someone seeking to have more knowledge than others, then the aggregate of all that you, you find, you still have it, it's there, but you only have it collectively and in place. That's such a, an improvement on something that I sometimes do with groups when I share with them, you know, in Japan, they literally have identified 72 different micro seasons, you know, the first time that the grasshoppers appear or the melting of the ice on the lakes. And so when I describe that, and then I get everyone in a group to speak about what are the micro seasons you've detected in your place? This process you just described is a vast improvement on that because it's actually people in a place together, adding to each other's knowledge maps of the land. And it kind of makes me think of something else that I read in your book that actually challenged me a little bit and made me doubt myself, which is a good thing, by the way, not a bad thing. And maybe there's a nuance in it that I'm missing and there probably is. So during the pandemic, I was living beside a massive, massive national park in, in North California. And I was like, amazing. This is the occasion to peace out and just to spend all of my time in there, in this land and just get to know everyone who's out there. And so I would wander out and take little uh, naturalist books with me or take pictures with iNaturalist on my phone. And every day I'd come home and sketch who I met, the different plants, the different flowers that were budding because it was April, May, the different seeds I was seeing and leaves. And I found their names. And actually for me, the act of knowing their, even if it was their kind of shitty English names, because I felt like they had proper names I didn't know, but I was working with what I had. Mm -hmm. I found their names. And then every time I would go out, day after day, I would greet them. And I'd be like, hello, like Mayflower or Indian paintbrush or, you know, Bay Tree. Or, and they had all of these incredible names. And the act of, of naming for me was a process of creating kinship or closeness. And so I was really interested in your book because you 
said something around the notion that naming could also be abstracting and fragmenting. And I also understand that because when you name something, you isolate it from the whole and you make it into a, a discrete noun when it's actually a verb and a, and a, and a process. So in you know, the invitation for people to go into land and start to learn their place and maybe learn the names of things and uh, just become a little bit more embedded in the seasons and the things that are blooming. Is there a way for that process of naming and greeting and recognition to not be fragmenting and abstracting, but to be one of kinship? I, I think it's it's more when you're doing chunking, you know, that chunking that humans like to do. <laughs> You know, when we, we create these heuristics to try and understand things and we name those groups, those categories, or we name these abstracts, it's those things that can act like a kind of curse and cause a split. The thing about English, though, is its placelessness. And because it's a trade creole, it's kind of just a hodgepodge of different things and it doesn't really mean anything. And because it's spoken by so many people, and it's spoken so widely, it loses its power that way as well. Because it's lost its local thing, then it loses power. Where it gains power, though, is in regional dialects of English. Like, you know, when you go to the UK and there's like 30 different dialects, and if you have somebody curse you, <laughs> you know, in Cockney, it's, it's a lot more powerful than settler dialects scattered around the globe. But let's say I'm naming plants in English or French or Spanish or any language. Is there a way for that naming to be building relationality? Or should we just keep away from naming in general? I mean, maybe you have a protocol that you could share that means that naming or identifying doesn't have to be killing. It's the difference between like Alexa, like I might, I don't know, make a nickname for you and, and call you Siri. It might be a joke and we have that together and that's cool. But there's a difference there between me calling you Alexa or Siri and me calling you an American, you know? Oh, Americans, man. <laughs> they, yeah, they make really good TV, but they're insane. <laughs> what are they doing? So me calling you an American, like in a pejorative way like that, that's not a good use of language. So it's almost the energy that's carried by the naming, if it's one of tenderness and connection and familiarity versus a labeling process so yeah. it's even less the words that are said than the way that they are said and the way that you're naming or relating because i know some biologists who will rattle off the latin names of things in a very kind of distance calloused way but i'll also know biologists who will use the latin words with love and mm. you can feel that they have such love for the snake or for this beetle and that's just the word that they have but their utterance carries respect mm. And I think I'm okay with that. Yeah. yeah. But like I said, it's about the layers of abstraction. Yeah. Because you've got the Latin taxon, but then as you go out in that taxonomy and you categorize that into a phylum, mm -hmm. it might be that if you ask the first peoples of that place that they have a completely different way of categorizing that and that actually there are different names for that planet at different stages of its life because it becomes a different species as it grows. That's really interesting. I've never heard that before. Yeah, well, that idea in Western science that a substance is a substance, we extract it and we test it, and that's universal. So maple syrup is maple syrup kind of thing. But And I don't know anything about that maple tree, but I imagine 
that you only tap those things in a certain season and when a tree is at a certain level of maturity, <laughs> it might be that a maple sapling in that place has a completely different name. We have a giant perch fish in Australia that most people know is barramundi, which is an Aboriginal name that's actually for a freshwater fish, a lungfish, like a prehistoric fish from right down in southern Queensland. So that lungfish was called barramundi in the local languages from that place. And I don't know, some settler or explorer or whatever obviously heard the word barramundi, and then they went right up north in Queensland and they saw one of these giant perches, which is a, a saltwater fish, and just called it a barramundi. <laughs> and so you have this completely alien name there, but everyone calls it barramundi now. But for me, it's just, and people say, well, what's the proper word for that, you know, in your language there? And I'm saying, well, wunkum, but min wunkum, kinder. But that's only the name for the one that's this big, you know. <laughs> it's like um, wetchen, wetchen is the name of it when it's that big, and then it's wetchen tuck, and then wunkum, and then wunkum, and a really big one that you don't eat. And that really big one, you know, it, changes gender you know and it changes between being a saltwater and a freshwater fish at different times and so the idea of these species being a fixed thing you know and that's what god made it and this is where god put it <laughs> and that's what it is and that is its name you know is a hangover from you know pre-enlightenment time i think is there a way not of creating necessarily, but of defining value in the current economic system that respects the inherent rights of other forms of life, their, their capacity to be? Or do you think it's just a, a messed up experiment? Unfortunately, the, uh, only for brief and fleeting moments. You know, it can last for about as long as Burning Man. <laughs> the economy of Burning Man lasts, which is a brief and beautiful flower in the desert. Not the Burning Man itself, um, yeah. <laughs> but the economy that they have, which is without money you know money itself is not the issue it's and it's i mean not even debt there's a massive gravitational pull that comes with capital and i'm not talking about capitalism but capital itself but in particular uh two-thirds of the capital like a particular two-thirds of the capital in the world and that's um land and in the end if land is capital then there can be no value or lasting value or you know sustainable ways of doing relational exchange tracking value in in relational ways why because you've abstracted land into just a dollar figure there's that but there's there's also it's 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 a very concrete impact on land when you make it into capital in order for anything to have value to be priced it must be limitable and excludable you know so you must have exclusive rights to that land you must be able to exclude others from it uh, i can't go on most of my land because it's it's someone else's property there are fences there are dogs there is security there are laws there is zoning that prevents me from approaching those places my community must live on that side of the tracks or on that side of the river and you know those zones are policed but it's not just that it's not just for us it's everything so we're the people who care for that land and must be part of it because we occupy an ecological niche in that land and if we're not in that niche, then the land suffers and everything falls apart. But apart from that, you know, the surveying and cutting up of the land 
and the creation of all these blocks and barriers and walls and fences and uh, this terraforming that's constantly going on, it prevents the flow of not just energies, but all the species that must move throughout that landscape and keep the regenerative loops going, you know, within that uh, system and, you know, the series of interconnected systems that make up a bioregion and those flows are prevented. Uh, the land can't move, the land can't breathe. Animal migration routes have changed or they're blocked or they have roads cutting them off so there is a massive toll on anything trying to follow those migration routes. Oh, God, not just the migration routes but just the daily round of you know, grazing, grazing routes, etc., that go on as they move from that low ground and up to the ridge and everything else. Everything's blocked, prevented, stifled in that way. As long as land is capital, the land will die. And as long as the land is dying, then in the end, nothing can have true value. As long as you don't have that bedrock of land as capital, then you, you could find a way to make it work. But as long as that's there, we're doomed. Until we feel that land is not capital but body, then it's going to be an imperfect system. Mm. Even if we're building green or building sustainable, if you have private ownership, then it may look like an idealized bioregion or microtown. But if you're not designing for the process, the relationship between the forces that live inside those buildings, aka humans and all of the other species that share space with us, the flows that are invisible but existing between those nodes are, are cut off. You're kind of really only going part way. And there are a lot of sustainable <laughs> homes under, under 10 meters of water right now. What a metaphor. What a metaphor. Oh, man. But the other thing is the people who are living in those homes are are more likely to be the people that you want around you to rescue people and, and help out and clean up afterwards. Everything's a process, and the same with with ceremony. You know, ceremony doesn't just drop out of a tarot deck. You know, we don't really enjoy ceremony that much. I, I don't know. Well, I don't anyway. My, my eldest son, he thinks it's so boring, he avoids it like the plague. Like since he was a kid, just didn't want to be anywhere near it. And it does take a long time and your back hurts and it's hours and it's repetitive. And that, that's the easy ones. And the other ones, are, they're just terrifying. You know, like uh, most of us will run and hide when the old fellas come be, to take us for ceremony in men's business because it's freaking scary. <laughs> it's scary and, and, and it's weeks and it's awful and it's really uncomfortable. And it's like lot, it's like war. There's lots of boredom and then moments of terror, and <laughs> you know, and nobody wants to do it. Um, it it's freaking hard, <laughs> you know. But then, you know, I see all these Canadian truckers doing, you know, Native American drum circles in their blockade. <laughs> you know what I mean? And and sweat lodges and stuff. You know, like people want the ecstatic moment and the the thing that'll make them feel special. And ceremony is seldom that. It's hard, and it's the thing where you give back what's been extracted to what needs to be renewed because there's that top-up of energy that keeps happening, you know, in our living systems that keeps entropy at bay, and and there's our efforts there uh, are there to make sure that we're paying that back as well, you know, with ceremony. Ceremony is the thing that amplifies that, that, um, that creates increase, you know, in the landscape and that, make sure that we're all connected together in one mind to be able to understand the many things that must be done and to be in tune with that.
that was Tyson today on Life Worlds. Now we travel to the windswept surf and pine coast on the west shore of Vancouver Island, where Joe Martin greets us from his home and carving workshop. As he speaks, imagine the process of deep listening and observation that is required to select the specific 500-year-old tree that will be felled and carved. Imagine the respect and care required for that process. I mean, taking down a 500-year-old tree. And the smell of resin, dusty wood chips, and crow song as blade slices into grain. I'm going to introduce myself to my language at first. My traditional name is Tuta Kwisnapsit, and I'm from Tlaukwet, from the house of Iwas. And the chief of our house is named Nukmis. My name is the last name that I have received as an adult in uh, our culture. And so here I am on the west coast of Vancouver Island in a place which is inside of Tlaukwet Tribal Park. We use the language like this because people do not understand our language. We're speaking to each other in English. I wish I had my mother tongue from Sweden or Switzerland that I could speak more properly to understand it. But when our language, when our rituals, when our worlds don't have the teachings of the animals around us, our brothers and our sisters who are there to show us how to be in the world through their wisdom, and when our stories don't have us turn into a killer whale or an orca, or when we can't even embody the lives of other species, we're not fully human, whatever that even means. Some of the most important teachings that these creatures do is that they only take only what they need from nature, not more. And that's how we should all live here on this world. And I believe if we did that, this world would be so much healthier and we wouldn't need this stuff happening between Russia and Ukraine. It's ridiculous. I feel really sad for the people in Ukraine. Yeah, back to the cultural teachings here. You know, once a child was born, then uh, this teaching carried on about being respectful when when you're little. You know, when being breastfed, the elder would come and sit there, sing that beautiful lullaby to you about being respectful. And then um, you start growing, you start walking, you grow up, you're eight or nine years old now, you're running around with the other children in the village and the people that would have been there would have been very respectful. They were all of them. I remember when I was very little and how it was when I was very little. And that was a beautiful part of my life. If I could, I would go back to that. But of course, I'm going to be 69 this year, pushing geezerhood. <laughs> so anyways, um, those things like that, you carry on like with the boys and girls. We're getting older now, I mean, have all our baby teeth still in our head, but after you start losing them, your adult teeth all start setting in. And what would happen when all your adult teeth set into your head now is that you've now been initiated into the wolf clan. And that's a crest on the bottom of a totem pole. And, and on the bottom of that totem pole is about the second most important teaching of life. And that is about fear. The elders would say, never have fear or show fear. Because if you're afraid, you only learn this much. But they'd always say, if you're not afraid, you can learn anything. But of course, uh, that winter 
wolf ritual that took place at December 21st at the new moon, between the new moon and full moon of that time, like last year, I think it was 2021 or something, when the new moon was December 14th. And then so all the way up until the 27th or 28th of December was uh, coming up and then at full moon was around there. And so at December 21st, they would, I still have had the winter wolf ritual because there were elders who knew when a certain star appeared in the sky and they would know that the daylight is now going to start getting longer. And that is when they did the winter wolf ritual. Now that being said, the winter wolf ritual was done then in the winter, then the spring, the summer, and the fall comes back. You go to all the seasons. And then you learn about all the other different creatures that are in this land. And that's why there are certain arrangements on a totem pole as to why it is like that. And then most of the time you'll have to speak to the artist and the family about why those creatures are arranged in such a way. Now, certainly um, we're human and we're animals like a dog or a cat or a bird or a snake and then at a certain point they begin to reproduce certainly that is the same with humans and our people understood that so not too long after the initiation in the wolf clan it was the puberty ceremonies to be done for the young ladies and that is when the bear dances were done the bear dance was done because of the laws of nature a bear has a boundary Right? You cannot just walk up to a bear, especially if it has cubs. It look out. She will take you out. Look out. Do not approach that female bear with cubs. No. So a long time ago, back in former days, it was rare when anyone molested a woman or a child. The person was taken immediately. And the whole village would gather and pass sentence now. Not tomorrow. Not next week. Now. They say it's like if you have something in your eye, do you leave that there? Or a sliver in your body, you pull out immediately. And that's how the laws of nature work. We live under the laws of nature, every one of us. And then the uh, village, the gatherer, cast sentence now, usually it was off with the head. They say there's no excuse because you've been taught since your mother conceived your life. And if you leave something like that in the community, it will fester. And it's been festering for a long time. And it's been the ugliest thing that has ever happened to our people is a sexual abuse which started in residential schools. It's horrible. And certainly, besides that, a lot of uh, missing, murdered Indigenous women across the American continent, not only in my community, but all across this whole continent, the U.S. and Canada. Indigenous women get murdered and nothing happens to anybody. And yeah, it's a sad state of reality, but that's how it is. You spoke to so many things that are moving me profoundly. What happens when the the role of the woman in society gets so taken away and distorted that you just have human beings without mothers and without wives and without grandmothers. And in my continent, in the 12th century, that's when the crime started against the women, the peasant women. They were burned and they were accused of being witches because they practiced earth religions. And it's really informative to go back to that moment in time in Europe in the 11th, 12th century and realize that that was when the woman lost her place. And then that created a society 
that was practicing colonization on its own continent and that was then ready in the next 100, 200, 300 years onwards to practice colonization in the world. And so, as you say, when we don't listen to that natural order between mother and son, wife and husband, and also between bear and wolf and human, we create absolute disorder in the world. And that's where we find ourselves today. So I just wanted to highlight your words and what you've shared. When you have the presence of these totem poles in your community, it sounds like they serve as reminders and sort of visual, alive, living things that can be read about who a family is, what a place is, the law that that entire culture is grounded inside of. And I'm curious how it has been for you to carve some of those totem poles and the process of selecting the tree. I think I've heard you share that you've spent many weeks finding the right tree and being in conversation with the forest to choose who may represent that story. I would love for you to bring us into what it's like for you as, as a carver and as an artist and as a elder of your of your tribe and as a knowledge keeper to embody a lot of what you've just shared. When I was very young, um, my father uh, did not leave me a choice to go or not, hunting, fishing, crapping, or canoe building. To get ready, we're going. It wasn't, you want to come? It was nothing like that at all. It was, get ready, we're going. I believe that is the way that every uh, person in our communities learned to do their things before. The boys and the girls. The girls would have to go to their moms, their grandmas, and aunts and sisters into the forest to help them get stuff. And they would get stuff and bring it back. And that's how we all learned. But uh, I did learn from my dad and my grandfather about uh, harvesting trees. And they taught that all these creatures that are in this world are put here by the creator for us to learn from. And that's why we're not to disturb them. Most important teachings, and that is to be respectful of all those. As they would say that respect is the uh, first teaching and the first law. Uh, we have to respect first ourselves and then all the other creatures that are here, plants as well, the trees. So um, I, I did learn from my father. He told me that uh, trees, and, and my grandfather too, are only harvested in the fall and the wintertime. That's the only time they were cut because there may be a bird nesting up there somewhere that you cannot see. You cannot see it. It may be up there. And so we're not to disrupt those creatures. So the people did have a huge respect for all the creatures in this part of the world. And especially if that tree was too close to maybe a fish-bearing stream or something. No, I'm not allowed to take it. So, you know, that was uh, one of the things. And it was the laws that our people have had as well was that Mother Nature will provide our need, but not our greed. I'm carving, I'm carving over there at the Botanical Gardens, and it's now changed names to the Nawasim Learning Center. I believe I, I could be wrong on that because I haven't heard many times, but it's uh, somehow got the name of Nawasim. Uh, there's actually uh, two totem poles over there and two wolf figures, which are going into the uh, Pacific National Park at the bicycle trail that they're just about to open officially. And so that's when those wolves will be put in there. 
they're going to have wooden wolves instead of real ones to chase the people down. How will people coming into contact with those wooden wolves in the park affect them? Like, well, what's your hope with that? Or is it more for the land that you're doing it to just have those poles in the land? There's going to be a um, plaque which will be put up there to uh, and describe the uh, important teachings of the wolf clan and what it is for us. And so I hope that it will be um, well understood by people who will stop there and learn about it. Because, you know, I think that in regards to animals, people just think that, oh, I don't know where these Red Riding Hood stories and the stories of the wolves from the Europeans that came here. Every wolf is a bad wolf and it's bloodthirsty and it's got big teeth to bite you and then it's hungry. And they're not like that. They only take only what they need and they keep the, the deer herd strong. They keep them really strong, you know. Yeah, there's... Um, Lots of teaching for all the different animals. You know, the wolves, uh, the deer. We have a crest of a deer on this totem pole. And our family has a deer dance. And this deer dance is done because the deer has to live out there in the forest with the wolves, the bears, the cougars, and us when we hunt them. Those big bucks with the big horns and the big does, they didn't get to be big like that because they're lazy. Oh, no. They have good eyes, they have good ears. And good smelling, they can smell you if you're around, and they will not let you close by. So um, my dad used to tell us, big bucks, big does, if a pack of wolves takes off of them, that buck or that doe has to run as fast as it can to get as far away as it can from the wolves. And when it figures it's far enough away, what it will do is run in a big circle like that, and it'll jump this way as far as possible. And the wolves will come running around and around and around. And meanwhile, the deer is taking off. And the wolves say, hey, where did that deer go? So my dad says it's about using your head if you get in trouble and to be aware and to be strong. And people had those teachings before. And I think that uh, you know, on the coast, many tribes had that teaching using this deer dance. And they know all the creatures that, that we can learn something from. Every one of them. Before you said that the, the wolf held a teaching around fear, um, or rather, as your elders would say, you know, don't have so much fear. Can you speak a little bit more to that? Why, why the wolf and fear? Well, um, do you ever see an animal that's afraid? They behave very different from humans. We have all these laws that are man-made laws. For example, I told you about the coming-of-age ceremony, and if, if it happened that someone molested a woman or child, the person was taken immediately. And so you know that people would not be afraid of those things back in the former days because those laws were adhered to. They listened to those things. You know? They listened to those because uh, every time we'd be in a house and an elder would come up and sit and talk about the boundaries. This lady has a boundary. Do not cross this boundary. And it was explained in, in many different ways. And then so that's how those things were done. But of course, you know, with the current situation with indigenous peoples all across this continent and probably many parts of the world, is that, you know, here, at least uh, on this continent here, we have been uh, forced into the residential school syndrome. And I have to speak this goddamn language to you, this English language. And it's, uh, it's very different. And I hope that you'll be able to speak with my daughters and have a discussion about more of these things with them. I, I would be so honored to speak with your daughters. Joe. Blessings to you. Thank you so much for your time. It's so nourishing to speak with you. Thank you. Thank you so much for listening to the podcast. 
Stay tuned in two weeks' time where we will have a fresh episode going into nature-based planning and maps for large landscape conservation. As per our tradition on the show, we're going to end with a fun fact to bring you into the life world of other forms of life. So, you heard about bears today on the totem poles. Did you know that bears know how to self-medicate? When they emerge from their winter-long hibernation, where their hearts are beating every eight to 10 seconds, that would be as if your heart would beat now. Ba-dum. Ba-dum. I even speeded that up. So can you bring yourself into that world of hibernation where your body is moving that slow? And then you emerge from this hibernation and you seek out a special route called the OSHA route, which is antiparasitic. And then you would eat it to stimulate your sluggish digestion, to clean out any parasites that accumulated during this long, long, long rest. And then you would take that paste and spray it and rub it all over your body to remove parasites from your fur and skin. That, for me, is a brilliant type of intelligence. And we can really observe the way that some of these animals act in order to inform our own human uses of certain plants and medicines. That's it for me today on LifeWorlds. As always, I'd love to hear from you. So please reach out to me on lifeworld.earth, where you can also find all of the show notes and an open source library ranging on everything from ecology to technology and life at large. Subscribe to the email list and I'll see you back here soon.